Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome Dr. Gayatri Sethi, educator, consultant, author, and known to many of you as Desi Book Auntie on Instagram. Gayatri, I think you're the first influencer I've had on the podcast. How are you? Oh, what a joy to be here. And thank you for inviting me on this podcast. It's uh, just such an honor to be here. And how am I? I am hanging in there. Thank you for asking. And I hope you are well. I think uh, for many of us, that the best we can do, especially at this uh, at this time of year. Um, thank you for joining me. All right, let's get into it. So let's start with your Stanford connection. You have a PhD in international and comparative education from Stanford. Um, tell us a little bit about your time at Stanford and then perhaps tell us also what else uh, you would like us to know about you. Oh, thank you. I um, This feels like such a full circle moment to be mm. on this podcast. And thinking back to the, the mid 90s when I first came to campus um, and thinking through the late 90s when I was struggling through dissertating, I don't think I could have ever imagined fast forwarding to 2022 and being on the podcast. So for me, you know, as I think back on all of these years and part of the reason that you invited me is because of our Stanford connection. Um, you know, I, I, my time at Stanford was complicated, right? Graduate school can be for many of us. It took me 10 full years to complete my PhD in comparative education. Um, and, you know, it was an interdisciplinary uh, program. And that's one of the reasons I was attracted to it. Um, and so, yes, I do still think of myself very much as an educator, more so than an influencer. <laughs> uh, part of the reason I took to social media platforms is because I tried, you know, in all of these years to reimagine my scholarly and uh, teaching life in kind of what Bell Hooks calls is sort of like teaching to transgress. And so what I do on, on, on Instagram is in a stealthy way, uh, what Sarah Ahmed calls the feminist killjoy, I kind of bring those reads and vibes into the internet to uh, young brown folks who might have been otherwise, you know, students and advisees of mine. Um, so um, after I completed my doctorate at Stanford, I um, was an instructor and teacher and adjunct for a long time uh, in liberal arts colleges like Spelman College and Agnes Scott College, which is a women's college. 
Um, and I also taught teachers and um, worked with edupreneurs who were trying to start innovative schools of various kinds. Um, and so all of that began at Stanford with my love of teaching and advising and what, why I went to graduate school there was primarily because I wanted to be a teacher. And I still primarily, sort of my primary identity is still that. Mm -hmm. um, and I really thank my time at Stanford for that because I was really blessed with opportunities in the Feminist Studies program and the Clayman Institute. At the time, it was known as the Institute for Research on Women and Gender, where I met colleagues who were also writing gender-focused dissertations. And those connections and opportunities to teach and be a TA in courses in Feminist Studies really um, sparked something lifelong for me. And so as much as graduate school was complicated and my own dissertation journey was so harrowing, I had several injuries and several times where I was dissertating with uh, back surgery, pain and so on. Um, and so physically and mentally, it was harrowing at times, but also it is where I uh, met Bell Hooks in person because she also had gone to Stanford and we had invited Bell Hooks to campus several times in uh, the time that I was in graduate school and each time I encountered her and met her and was in her presence, um, something just sparked mm. within me and kept going because I could then see myself as an educator outside of academia. I could, I could imagine what that was like. And even if my professor said I was too kind to make it in, hack it in academia, and that's what some of my advisors on my committee said, was like, I was, I was too nice and too kind to hack it in academia. Wow. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that I was writing in a way that wasn't academically rigorous enough. Oh, yeah. And so part of what happened to me in graduate school was that I started to lose kind of my voice, my writing voice. And so writing became so difficult that dissertating was really difficult. I had all of these voices in my head telling me what I was supposed to be writing and that's not how I really want to write. Um, and so fast forward all these years, I wrote this in exactly the way I wanted to write it back then. <laughs> you know, multiple languages are written in. There are no footnotes because we don't believe in footnoting content. We say Hindi and Punjabi and Sanskrit and Kiswahili words in there without, you know, italicizing them. We, we just kind of show up in uh, the way that you know, folks I'm in community with speak in real life. And um, that's what I always wanted to do, even back when I was dissertating at Stanford. So for, um, hang on one sec, for our okay. listening audience, I just want to uh, point out that um, uh, when Gayatri said here, she turned around and points to her book, Unbelonging, uh, which we're going to talk about at length in just a minute. But that's the here that uh, came up just, uh, just a minute ago. Um, but just to go back to this idea of um, of, of needing to write a certain way, because we talk about quote unquote academic training, yes. but it's really that training is a way of um, perhaps reshaping our voice or in some ways perhaps of taking our voice away, would you yeah. say? That was how it was for me. So, you know, in Unbelonging, I do mention very briefly sort of having academic PTSD. So I offer content warning to the listener that what I am really alluding to is that for a long time, I, after I completed my dissertation and earned those three letters that Stanford does not hand out very generously, you got to right. work for them. <laughs> um, that, that, 
you know, that I, I stopped writing and I stopped reading um, academic content for a good decade afterwards because I was so mentally saturated, yeah. intellectually beat down. I felt that I didn't have anything important to say. Um, and I also mostly felt, as far as your question about voices, that I didn't, that the voice in which I wanted to speak or write wasn't valued and wasn't valid. Wow. And so I know that dissertations are a very specific genre of writing. So I knew that. But even within that, I saw that if you are embodied and identified the way that I am as a person of the global South, as someone who did not grow up speaking English as their first language, that it was even more challenging and complicated for me to push back against norms, academic norms, and a committee that was all white, primarily English speakers. So it was very difficult for me to push back, to stand up for myself, to advocate for the fact that, you know, that there are things we can do in dissertations, um, you know, to, to sort of recognize that the person writing it is embodied in a certain way, has subjectivity, if you will. Um, but those difficult conversations didn't get me far. So what I did have to do was rewrite my dissertation from scratch at least three times. Mm -hmm. And then even after I defended it successfully, the edits were so considerable that the dean, uh, of the school of ed at the time had to step in and his voice is almost more present in the version that sits in the library now. So you can look up that is African feminist development Skya Trisetti. It's somewhere sitting in the Coverly Library where all the dissertations are. And it, you know that voice doesn't read like mine. And if people who knew me read it and they were like, really? That's not you? And I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Wow, this is such, I mean, and we could talk about this uh, for the rest of the podcast. We won't because we have other things to talk about, but it's a very important issue you bring up. And I love that you that you describe um, the thesis as a genre, because what would it be like if we just saw it as one of many genres, whereas it's really in the academy, it's presented to us as the only way, right? You have to write like this or not at all. Those are really your two options, uh, as opposed to this is kind of what you have to go through to get to this place, but then you can do whatever you want. That's not how it's presented to us at all. And when I say us, I mean us as academics, but you and I don't straddle the same identity in that I'm not a woman from the global south. And I do think that, as you um, correctly point out, the challenges are that many more. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about your identity because um, it's uh, it's it's always complicated to talk about identity. And I know that you're okay with me asking you this question because I did ask your permission. Gayatri Sethi, where are you from? Wait, wait, let me begin. Um, you know, I I that question is so important, right? Because when we meet new people, right? That's one of the first questions that right. we're socialized to ask. And also, as you just pointed out, when we're embodied the way that I am, so all my life, that question almost felt weaponized. I, I have a great distrust of that question. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'll tell you why, it's because no matter where I was born, no matter where my heritage is from, no matter where I actually lived at the time or how I spoke or which language I was speaking at the time, whoever asked me that question was generally trying to get to something that disrupted their idea of who I, they thought I was. 
Right. right. So like, where are you from when I first arrived in Chicago as an international student from Botswana was like, well, I could tell you Botswana, but then you'd ask me, where's that? <laughs> and then I'd say to you, well, I'm from the capital city, Kaboroni, but you might not recognize that word because it's spelled with a G and it's said with Kabo. And then it's not a silent E, but then I'll go into this long explanation just of the capital city of Botswana. And you tell me, where is that? Is that like in Eastern Europe? And I was like, no, that's Bulgaria. <laughs> um, and then we would have this very complicated discussion about geography and how nationality isn't really how I identify. So let's say, you know, fast forward all these years later, I live in the sacred lands of the Muskogee Creek people. And I always begin with that because, you know, one of the things coming to the Americas was to learn, you know, to honor indigenous sovereignty. Who's taught that as an immigrant? You got to learn it. And so I often say, well, I, you know, I, I currently reside here, but I am a guest here. I could be a settler immigrant here. Um, you know, my people are originally from Punjab before the partition. And then people are like, well, what, what do you mean partition? I was like, oh, Lord, here we go. Now we're going to do a history lesson going back to 1947. We're going to implicate the British colonizers to say, you know, my heritage is now in a place known as Pakistan, but it is not home to my people because they became refugees. Right. And I am first generation born in the African continent, but I am not African racially. I am of South Asian Punjabi heritage, but I was born and raised on the African continent. Um, and so that it becomes longer and longer, right? But who has the time for that? You have the time for it because here we have a podcast of several minutes long. And, and the thing is that we could go on and on and complicate it and say, yes, my racial identity, my linguistics and the way that I articulate English, this is a way that I had to learn to speak because when I first came to the US, I spoke with an accent much similar to yours with kind of a British influence, but not quite because it had a little South African intonation. Mm -hmm. And I was raised by Punjabi, like Hindi speakers who had a particular British influence. Did they see intonation yeah. of, of English words? But when I came here, that English was not recognizable to the second graders that I was you know, teaching as, you know, in, in the public schools of Chicago. So I had to then say, okay, let me teach myself American English in, to the extent where I could speak in a way that people might not ask me where I'm from, but they still do anyway, isn't that? <laughs> they still do anyway. So what is that question really, right? Like it's, it feels, there is often that defensive reaction and I don't ever know how to answer that. Um, and I don't often answer it directly. Uh, sometimes I'll just throw back a question and say, what do you really want to know about yeah. me? Right? Like, would you like me to say, how do I self-identify? Would you, would you like to know a little bit about, you know, kind of the places I've called home? Yeah. You know, um, Stanford is one of them. <laughs> it's one of the many places I've called home. Um, and, and so, you know, that's kind of it. And then, Let's also talk about the political moment in which there's fascism on the rise from India to Italy to everywhere in the world and right here in the US. And so that question is actually uh, comes with policy implications. And you know, we are living through a time where 
you know, especially brown and sort of people who headscarf wear like I sometimes do are, are suspiciously regarded when it comes to sort of narratives around immigration. Um, and so with that in mind, you know, especially during the Trump years in the US, I would not answer that question at all. Right. Um, I, I wouldn't. Um, and so, you know, well, thank you for answering it for me on the podcast. Yeah. As I as I said, we did. Uh, it it was it was. Uh, we talked about it before because I would never just throw that question at anyone anyway, but especially uh, during uh, the mm-hmm. podcast. Um, I just want to do a quick plug uh, for our listeners about the partition exhibition that's happening in Green Library at Stanford. So this will be going on until the end of or the quarter, so around the middle of December, twenty twenty two. Of course, people could be listening to this podcast at any given time, but uh, if they're listening to it uh, in the next few months, then um, it's a small but I think very powerful exhibition that kind of tells a little bit about the history of partition. Um, There's an interactive map where you can map out your own family's journey uh, from wherever you started to where you are now, like with just a piece of string and then some pieces of paper where you can write your story and uh, it's already filling up the map is uh, it's a very popular interactive piece of it. Um, and then one of the things that I really like about the exhibition is we have some reference to Ms. Marvel, um, the TV show, uh, because so many people in my life who are not related to South Asia have told me, oh, partition, that's a big thing, right? I didn't know anything about it until I watched Ms. Marvel. And I think it's really incredible how um, a modern TV show aimed at a broad audience uh, is, is kind of reminding people of complicated histories. So all of that in response to um, how you described your identity. I'm not at all surprised uh, hearing you talk about how complicated this is for you that you ended up writing a book. So tell us about Unbelonging. Yes, um, thank you for making those connections. And I wish I could visit that um, interactive exhibition. Uh, I was hoping that that somebody would make a a virtual version for uh, Instagram so we could virtually uh, visit the exhibit. So I think there might be some virtual version on the um, on the partition archive, the 1947 partition archive website. So we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes in case people want to check that out. That would be phenomenal. That is an area of study um, for me now um, uh, is part of my ongoing scholarship and wish to write about for young people. So um, I would appreciate that resource. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, homish, I I use the word ish a lot. So I almost Mm -hmm. named my book Unbelonging, um, you know, like ish. (laughs) But of course it sounds a lot like another word, right? And it is to do that, right? It's to call light to the fact that this notion of home, this notion of belonging that many of us are constantly just at home in our unbelonging and the fact that no matter where we go, there we are, we are home. Um, And that's just how we have sort of embodied the the idea of home as as kind of a feeling, as this thing that that is more of an emotional scape rather than a landscape or a homescape. So, So, you know, there were many Uh, academic concepts that I used to teach about as a professor of global studies 
that I could not convey enough, right? So not only did the question, what are you or where are you from, challenge me and stump me all my life, but then it led me down this path where I became a professor that would interrogate these questions, right, from academic perspectives and sort of look at the geography and the sociology and the international relations aspects of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that led me to writing on belonging, one, because I wanted to write in my own voice, right? I wanted to write in a voice that felt genuine, that felt complicated and layered in ways that I had spent, you know, almost a decade after writing the dissertation healing from and sort of almost retraining myself to write and speak in a new way. Um, and, and in that process, I was able to write in semi-verse style in open-ended sentences and multilingual um, references. And so I wrote on belonging with an imagined learner, someone who is a first year college student who might be, you know, this might be their first book on global studies, looking at, you know, core themes like identity and belonging. And so those are some of the prompts that led me to write this way. And I also wanted to write in an accessible way, right? So one of the things about academia that no longer resonated for me is I really didn't want to hide behind the jargon, right? Like I didn't want to philosophize or theorize about homescapes, you know, of the, <laughs> of the perpetually migrant. And, and yet there are words that are very academic words that are woven in to my book on belonging because that's just who I am, right? So I can't hide from the fact that I have this considerable academic privilege. Thank you, Stanford, again. Um, you know, and with that comes this ability to use these words and just sort of weave them into everyday parlance. Um, and so that's what what I did with unbelonging. I kind of tackled many of these questions you've asked me and did them in open-ended verse form. Some read like mantras, some read like affirmations, some read like research prompts, some there are open-ended pages that invite discussion. So there's a lot of questions that are unanswered and then a lot of reflections and sort of observations um, that came from just living and being embodied the way that I am. So I do complicate many of the notions that we have about migration, immigration, um, being a person who's, you know, not just generally the immigration discourses around you start out in one country, one national identity, and then you end up somewhere in the West, right? right. But that wasn't my journey or my family's journey, right? So we were partitioned from what is now Pakistan, we might have a home in, in India, but not really. I was the first generation born on the African continent. My biological family right now, my sibling and, and, and so on, still live in Botswana. And I am the first generation to be educated and to be the mother of children born here mm -hmm. uh, in the United States in sacred Muskogee lands. And so, and, and, and so now, where is that? I never found that in a book, right? So Dr. Morrison tells us, write the book that you want to read. I was like, yeah, I couldn't, I was always curating content to teach with um, as a professor. And so I would collect these quotes and these writings and I wove them in here too. Like, you know, Sarah Ahmed is all over in here with the feminist killjoy vibe and Bell Hooks is definitely in there. I talk about when I first met her at Stanford. Um, and so I weave those things in to offer nuance to hopefully layered uh, reflections, you know, so it's more a book that teaches you not what to think, but really maybe to rethink. 
I have to say, um, and I'm going to ask you to read a little yes. bit from it so yes. you can prepare yes. for that, but um, you had kindly sent me the book and um, I had COVID and I was, you know, prepping for talking to you and I was like, oh, I guess I should read that book and oh, I'm so tired. I've got so much brain fog. And, and then when I opened it, I was like, oh, oh I can read this. And isn't that terrible that I had so much resistance to reading because I'd read your bio and, you know, you come with these considerable quote unquote credentials. And so I assumed your book was going to be too heavy going for my brain foggy brain. And it's such a phenomenal read, but it's it, it was kind of a scary moment almost that I thought I was assuming it would be too much for me. Yes. And, and why should it be that a book that carries weight should be difficult and should be something that you can't handle when you're sick whereas your book carries so much weight but is written in such an accessible way that I felt so much relief when I opened no footnotes yay <laughs> I can do and this the, and, the, and the jargon is written in a way that's like research prompts like should you choose as the reader to look this up you know, here are some terms to research on your it own time. I have to tell you, it was absolutely what I needed in that moment. So um, if you. you wouldn't mind, uh, let us enjoy a little of your writing. You know, and thank you for noting that. Can you imagine how much academic kind of divesting I had to do to learn to write this way? I mean, I had to, I, I yeah. really did. Because I, I too wrote it with that in mind, that many of my co-learners, you know, and especially during these COVID times, you know, we are saturated, you know, with information. And I wanted to create spaciousness on the pages. I wanted yeah. to create kind of an open-endedness a little bit. And, and so I did put a lot of thought into the voice and how I wrote it. And thank you for perceiving that and for affirming for me that my intentions landed with a reader I value yes. and admire. So thank you for that, Dr. Lolita DePoma. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm going to read to you going back to your previous question about identity and where are you from, right? So I wrote a very uh, visceral piece um, called Send Me Back with a question mark, Send Me Back. Um, and my observation was at the time when I wrote it is around the globe, hate crimes are proliferating and politicians threaten to send us back. People demand, go back to where you came from. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I really felt that moment, especially here in the US during the Trump years yeah. and now really. Um, and, and so I wrote an open-ended reflection on send me back as a question. Beware if you attempt to send me back, you will have to piece me up. Partition me into multitudes, send my head in parts, to all the lands and places where I have lived and learned. But how much of my head will you keep here in this land called America? As I have studied and labored and taught at places of higher education, built on the land of whose original keepers are the Europe, Muskogee, and Illini. Send my heart to the Lake Victoria region of Tanzania, where I was born. Send my hands to the land that is now known as Pakistan, where my ancestors were born two generations ago. Send my insides to India, Punjab, where my people have resided after partition. 
send an organ of your choosing to Iran, the birthplace of the faith I follow. They might return it to the sender. Beware if you try to send me back. You must send me to Botswana where I was raised, where my passport says I am a citizen. Send my feet to all the lands and places I've traveled and sojourned. Too many to name from Aruba to Cuba to France to Mauritius to Trinidad to Zimbabwe. Won't you please send tiny pieces of me to everywhere I felt at home and at peace? The Caribbean and Mediterranean seas, the Indian and Atlantic oceans. Keep my uterus in America because it held and birthed American children. This land is rightfully theirs, despite all the denial, as their paternal people are descended from those enslaved by this land's settlers. Their ancestors built this land. They were raised to respect this land. If I leave my American children here, the most precious parts of me, I dread and fear. You will discard or exile them too, as you disown their immigrant parent. Perhaps I will take my progeny with me to lands still unknown, where we will know no fear because of the colors of our skin, our worship practices, our names. Beware if you attempt to send me back, partition me piece by piece, too many pieces, traces of me will be left behind in America's soil. How will you erase or recompense me for the cumulative impact of my existence here? As my soul is indivisible, she will roam unshackled and borderless wherever she pleases to be. Send me back piece by piece, yet I will remain intact. Thank you so much. I feel like it requires applause, but we don't have that. <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing that. And obviously we're gonna get um, a link to the book uh, in the show notes. Um, you mentioned the Caribbean and perhaps no other place kind of embodies what you talk about, these very complicated histories and identities and, and multiple, multiple mixed identities. So tell us about your time in the Caribbean and how that fits into your story. Oh, it's one of the places where I do feel at home. Right. And um, this was my one of the first times that I landed there. Um, in Port of Spain, Trinidad. Um, I was carrying a Botswana passport and I landed and the immigration officer just looked at me and said, welcome home without looking at my passport. And it was one of these visceral kind of like tingling feelings all over feelings like, whoa, what just happened? Mm. You know, because by contract, should I try to fly into uh, Amsterdam or <laughs> Brussels? <laughs> we'll be taken to the back room and interrogating them right about 
had to, but um, you know, make the mistake of speaking the language of of the people where you land and to be mm-hmm. a body like me and learn the lesson. So, so I, I rarely do that. And here I was in Trinidad, and and so you know, from there began this love that I have, this affinity, and everywhere I went, and the people in particular, just feel familiar, because there are parts of the Caribbean, especially the uh, Indo-Caribbean, that remind me of places in East Africa, Zanzibar, coastal East Africa, where I was born and raised, um, as well as South Africa, uh, you know, so Durban. So I was like, you know, like when I went to Port of Spain and we were walking around, I was like, am I in Durban? I mean, down to the architecture, to the cuisine, the kinds of foods that we had and the purpose of my my going there was really to bring co-learners along. I was one of those professors that did study abroad with students. And so we spent the first half of the semester learning about Trinidad and then, you know, nine days traveling there and then come back to debrief. Mm -hmm. Um, And I must say that when it comes to South Asian diaspora, one of the things I raise about, you know, South Asian-ness in, in my book, in my work, is really who do we include in our us? And the thing about the Caribbean is very rarely do people from South Asia, whether they're from Bangladesh or whether they're from Sri Lanka, consider Trinidad or Guyana or Fiji as part of their us. And I really want to shift that. I really, you know, I'm one of those people that recognizes that we're the, the South Asian diaspora, the word diaspora is so beautiful that way, extends and includes the Caribbean. And so when I ask co-learners and people that I bring this information to, why does it they never thought about, you know, Trinidad as part of South Asian diaspora? When you peel away at the layers, it's not that they don't know history, but that they're still operating with these, you know, very colonial mindset kinds of notions around South Asian-ness. And so then you peel away at that and you realize it's because, you know, many people in the Caribbean are multiracial. And so, you know, one of the things I really do teach about and address head on is really, you know, South Asian anti-Blackness all over the world. It's global. Um, And so the Caribbean really is a, a really important place to learn about that, to learn about you know, Indo-Caribbean identity as being one that can really mirror back to the South Asian diaspora, you know, what did it means to be South Asian, what, what it means to have yourself and your ancestors be indentured and you have no access to the original place you were from on South in South Asia or your caste or your language, and to then in the Caribbean recreate and reimagine and also in many really uncanny ways stay true to those things because when you eat that food you know you know where that food originated when you hear the way certain words are intonated or their love for bollywood or their particular chutney music as they call it there's a whole genre of music in the caribbean yeah um you're like you know where that came from so many of them look to south asia and india in particular for origin connections yeah but many of them can sort of sort of confess with great deal of pain in their hearts that they don't feel solidarity or connection back so that it's one sided 
And so one of the reasons that I continue to sort of talk about that and wove some aspects of my visits to the Caribbean into this book is really that, you know, should there be future projects aside from partition, this would be something that I would bring to the world is really, you know, how can we embrace our kin who are part of the diaspora, who are multiracial, multi-faith, and who see South Asia as being their kind of origin, but don't receive the love back in return? And how can we reconcile and heal those divides? So that's often a conversation that I'm having in the work that I do with educators and writers for young people in particular. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And um, thank you so much for making time for us today and to talk about your work and uh, your story and about your book, Unbelonging. Uh, we wish you very well and we'll put uh, links to all the things we reference in the show notes to the episode. I thank you with all my heart. Thank you for having me on. It, as I said, feels like a full circle moment to be speaking with the Stanford community at large is just an honor. You all are so important to me. Um, continue to be part of my life's journey. And thank you for your thoughtful questions that really were so generative. They really made me reflect and think in new ways. And I, I found myself responding to your inquiries with, with words that I hadn't ever articulated before. So thank you for being such a generous host on this podcast and for uh, inviting me. You're much too kind. Thank you so much. And I also want to take this moment to thank Soham Shiva for the intro and outro to the podcast and Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPod, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.